Hello, I'm Jonathan Crocker of Theater on the Ground and the Wild Men, and welcome to the Renaissance History Podcast presented by the Digital Ren Fair. And I'm here joined today by Carl Ash. Or Giacomo the Jester! And I have been performing at fairs for quite a long time as Giacomo the Jester, as Double Indemnity, a Celtic music band, Empty Hats, a Celtic music band, Tip the Velvet as a music band, also a knife-throwing show, and now as the announcer for my son's show, The Daring Horseman. I'm exhausted just thinking about it. Man, I need to go back and do my intro with more enthusiasm. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's good to be here, Carl. Let's talk. (laughs) Nice to be here. Thanks. I love the fact that the Renaissance fairs began in the 60s, -hmm. and it makes so much sense because the 60s was the Renaissance coming out of the 50s. The 50s was such a an age of conformity, of black and white, mm-hmm. and then the 60s were the rebirth of culture and art and music and experimentation, and that's what the Renaissance was. So it's it makes perfect sense that the 60s would give give birth or rebirth to the Renaissance festival. It's why You know, there are now medieval festivals, Mm -hmm. which aren't very different than Renaissance festivals. You know, the garb is a little different in the, in the, in the monarchs. I don't have a different costume for the most part, but I, I like the mythology of the Renaissance more than I like the mythology of the Middle Ages. Right. And again, it's just the mythology. Mythology. (laughs) It's just the mythology, you know. So I've always been, been struck by that. There's a movie, Pleasantville. All of it's in black and white. Right, right. Until something happens, and then it... Until Don Knotts fixes the TV. To, <laughs> and then it's in color. Because the movie, Pleasantville, is what happened to the 50s when the 60s happened. And all of a sudden, oh. it was in color. And that's what the Renaissance was, and that's what the Renaissance fair is. I always say, and I, I, and I say this in my tours, if I were to distill what I know about the Renaissance, which is not a hell of a lot. I'm not a scholar by any means, but I always say that the Renaissance began in the Pitti Palace where the de Medici's, uh, where the Medici's lived and uh, at Cosimo de Medici's dining room table when he was probably having a little too much grappa with his friends. And he uttered those immortal words, screw the Pope. And the Renaissance <laughs> began because that's what, what was required. Going to play Study by the medieval rules anymore, right? And the, yeah. and the Pope was his cousin, and they didn't get along very well. <laughs> and the Renaissance began. I call that reductionist history. If I distill it all down, that's what you know. And on the tours, we go to that dining room table, so it makes for a fun story. So, yeah. but that is an interesting observation. Not that the fifties were the dark ages per se, but uh-huh. but it was a time of a very widespread cultural repression on many different political repression, cultural, um, sexual, sexual, social, artistic, artistic. Yeah. 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 Racial. Yeah. Um, Uh and there's a, a, we've mentioned this before too, the the book, Well Met, Mm -hmm. that that talks about the cultural history of of Renaissance festivals in America. Amy Rubin, the author talks about the interplay that it's not just the Renaissance fair sort of came out of the sixties, but in many ways, many things that we come to associate with the 60s actually came out of the Renaissance festivals. Oh, that's interesting. That there were musicians in Southern California that had no place to exhibit their geekhood. You know, they were really interested in in, in cultural, in ethnic mm-hmm. music, and there weren't any, you know, venues 
um, that they could they could bring that out. Um, and and then they met each other, and there are all these cross pollinations that occurred, and so the whole sort of world music thread that began oh, in the sixties actually was fostered in, and sort of brewed up in the Renaissance festivals. Oh, uh, or interesting. The, or specifically, the Southern California and Northern Northern California areas of it. Huh. And the sort of the, the the craft movement that flowered in the sixties, the craft revival. Uh, Renaissance festivals were an early uh, marketplace for sure. people who had that interest, yeah, yeah, um, and allowed a lot of people to 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 actually make the break and and create a, a livelihood that way, sure, where otherwise they might not have been able to. And so there was a whole whole lot of interplay between festivals and yeah. the larger cultural movements that were going on. I, I remember meeting the first year at Scarborough. I met a guy, Miles, who was. Uh, one of the original um, Bald Mountain Moccasin mm-hmm. guys. Mm-hmm. And he was a corporate engineer. And uh, one day he had gone to a Renaissance festival and loved leather and boots and stuff. And he got up in the, uh, he tells the story of going up in the elevator to his office. The door opens up. He stood there, let the doors close went back down and walked out and he never went back and started one of the founders of Bald Mountain Moccasins. Renaissance festivals are such um, an anomaly for performers, as both of you know. One, if I perform at a, a folk festival, which I've done, I don't care how well you do, you're not going to be there the next year. Because that's not their business model. Right. Maybe five years they'll have you cycle you back, Mm -hmm. you know. But Renaissance fairs are the only festivals I've ever heard of, really, where... How long have you been at this one? (laughs) This is my 32nd season at the Ohio Renaissance Festival. Here's what you have to look forward to, you know. (laughs) Yeah. I'm only at 29 in Arizona. Oh, okay. (laughs) You know, and same here, uh, 30, probably close to 30 years at Sterling. And the audiences like to see the same show year after year. It's it's, it's a a real connection. Two other things that I've always felt about Renaissance fairs is that what makes Renaissance fairs work more than more than uh, Wild West shows or Civil War reenactment or whatever. Renaissance fairs are a tarot deck come to life. We are myth. If we're not myth, we're not doing our jobs. And so that's what we have to do. We have to create our card, Hmm. so to speak. You know, yeah, that's a great metaphor or a great uh, analogy. I had an idea years ago for Kiara, who was a tarot reader at mm-hmm. festivals, that I thought would be really cool. Instead of people going to her booth and her shuffling the deck and her laying out 10 cards, that people would come through the gate and every person they met along the way, they would give them a card, you know, and that would be their spread. And they would get to her booth, lay out 10 cards, and that's who she would read. So we were, again, the living tarot deck. Um, too complicated to do. Yeah, but in, yeah. The, but in the screenplay version, <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll make that work. I like to liken it to like a pop-up book. Children like to read their same pop-up book over uh-huh. and over again because they know who the characters are on each page and they know 
their yes. story and things, but they still want to see them. They still want to hear the story and have it read to them and everything yeah. and engage with that. But it's like, it's the same picture every single time. And every single time coming to a Ren Fair as a child, like I would see the same people over and over again. And I remember seeing consistently the same people in the same costume and being yes. able to remember just that because at Renaissance Fairs, it's overtly stimulating everything. You see too many things, right? And if you can remember five things out of it, and as a performer, my goal is to try and be one of those five things that somebody mm, remembers. Sure. Because they're only going to remember, like, maybe that, right? right? Like, that's just too much going on. And if you can be one of those things, that's a... When, when I pitch Empty Hats, my, my band, to festivals, one of the things that I say is your, your guests, when they leave, they're going to remember three things mostly. The Queen, the Joust... And Looney Lucy. Those are the three things they're going to remember more than anything else. And they're like, yeah, you're right. Okay. You're on. <laughs> you know, so, because um, she is such a memorable character. I, I like how the festival environment encourages such strong character. As a performer, it's it's a great balance of subtlety and and. Being, being going over the top, right. you know, but there's a subtlety, subtlety to be able to go over the top, right? And right. Still maintain connection. Absolutely. You know? Not everybody, not everybody can do that. And Looney Lucy can really do that. She can mm -hmm. be charming and filthy at the same time. <laughs> and if you're filthy without the charming, you're out. <laughs> you're out. <laughs> yeah. The other things that's that's anomalous about Renaissance fairs from having done this for so long, and I'm sure you've had this experience, so I'll just give you my stories about it, and I'm sure you you will have them or if you haven't already. But to so be the fabric and history of a family's life is such an honor and so humbling. A number of years ago in Pennsylvania, I saw this woman that we had seen for years, mm -hmm. knew her parents, I saw her through two husbands, you know, I mean, every year, you know, see what happens in their lives. Right. And I said, you know, I haven't seen your folks this year. Is everything okay? And and she said, no, my dad is uh, dying and he can't, he doesn't have the strength to come here anymore. He always loved the band. He always bought all of our CDs. And I said, you know what, we'll, we'll, we'll come to him. And uh, we did, and we came one night to their house, and we literally um, played on his deathbed. And he died two days later, wow. and she came, she gave us all pins and stuff, and she said he never stopped talking for the next two days about you guys coming to him and playing for him. And so to be a part of a family's history is so beautiful. In my solo Giacomo show, I walk a rope and I tie it to a post on one end or a tree trunk on one end, six guys on the other, six big guys and one little girl holding the other end of the rope. And I get on it and juggle torches mm -hmm. and I've done it for 30 years, you know, and about five years ago at Sterling, I, I'm packing up the show and the family of the little girl who I had picked to hold the rope, mm -hmm. they came up and her mother was like, I'm so glad you picked my little girl because 
20 years ago, you picked me. <laughs> and I saw him crying. I'm like, like, that she remembered this, that this was that, that strong a memory for them. And then to do that, I mean, right. you know, I often think about in my life of how does one measure a life well lived? And that would definitely have to be one of the earmarks is that just just being able to have that and to have people say you know because of the band and the music that oh we played beggars to god at our wedding and that was our first dance or you know my mother passed away and she wanted to hear beggars to god at her funeral you know and and we we hear this stuff all the time and, you know, and I'm, I'm sure the Rolling Stones get stuff like that, <laughs> but they don't get to hear it personally very often. Right. They're a little bit farther removed. And I love that. I mean, I love that they're right there. I started many years ago as Giacomo the Jester, and I did a show of magic, juggling, rope walking, and extremely obnoxious behavior. And then I met uh, Frank O'Gara at Trump's Castle. We were both performing for our, who would later become our president. Uh, and we started the Double Indemnity Knife Throwing Show. He also played guitar. And so we started singing and playing together. And then we formed a band called Double Indemnity as an offshoot of the Knife Throwing Show. As there probably band. aren't very many bands that have been an offshoot of a knife-throwing show. No, no. We used to say knife-throwing is just our day job. We're really <laughs> minstrels, you know. So when I first started doing Renaissance festivals, I, I was a classical guitarist. I had studied classical guitar in New York City at the American Institute of Guitar. And I sort of looked around and I went... Yeah, I'm never going to play music at a Renaissance Fair because at the time, nobody really paid attention. It was all pretty much background music. So I was doing these shows, these variety shows, and I was getting audiences and making hat money and blah, 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 blah. But I wasn't going to play music at them. Then also I was working at Trump's Castle and somebody had given me a cassette tape just to let you know mm -hmm. the time frame. And I got on my bicycle and I put in this cassette tape. On your Walkman. On my Walkman, right, absolutely. <laughs> put on my headphones and my Walkman. I'm playing this cassette tape. And all of a sudden, I start crying. This was Silly Wizard, Andy M. Stewart singing these incredible songs. Just, and I realized... These are the songs my voice was meant to sing. Mm -hmm. So Frank and I started doing, started doing this music at the Poconos Renaissance Festival. Mm -hmm. Brian Belge, Dennis Johnson. Right. Also only lasted two years, mm -hmm. but it was really great. That was where the knife throwing show was for the first time. And, you know, we were playing music mostly, you know, to meet women. And so we would just walk around and play music. And then one day, so this is how, when I realized that this music sort of meant something. One of the characters at the Poconos, the Merry Widow, she's sitting on a picnic bench. There's a couple of people milling about. 
And she says, oh, goodly minstrels, perhaps you would play a goodly song for us. And I, we launched into a song, a kind of a sad song called If I Was a Blackbird by Silly Wizard. And at the time, I would close my eyes, sing the song, and I wouldn't open my eyes until I was done with the song. I get done with the song, I open my eyes, and there's 40 people around us. And the woman that asked us to play the song was gone. And they're clapping, and I'm like, oh, wow, that's nice. And I was, but I was like a little irked that she was gone. <laughs> I was like, yeah, stick around. What? Really? You asked us to play a song? You don't want, you know. And then I ran into her later on, and she said, I'm so sorry. I had to leave. There I was in my silly little character, and that song was just too real. I couldn't stay in character and listen to that. It's powerful. That was, you know, yeah, it was really powerful. Yeah, you know, again, it was just Frank and I walking around playing, singing songs, you know. And because it was just the two of us, you know, we didn't have to sing things like Roll Your Leg Over and, and we didn't have to sing Drunken Sailor. We'd sing whatever the hell we want. And people really, really liked it. All the vendors started going, Where's your cassette? Giving us money so we could make a cassette. And we're mm. like, No, what are you, you know, we're knife throwers. And our first cassette, you know, done in. Frank's basement was uh, was called Double Indemnity Minstrel Knife Throwers Songs That Get You in the Heart and it was it was a it was a heart on on a knife throwing target with a knife in it and a, the stem and the flag of a note coming off of the heart and that was our first that was our first cover Songs That Get You in the Heart uh, so and what was funny by the time we released our second album it had to be on cassette and CD. Mm. And then by the time we released our third one, it could only be on CD. Talk about a golden age. That was the 90s. You'd get, you'd oh. get done with a set and what? $600 in CD sales? I, <laughs> oh, believe me, I'm going that to myself. I'm, you know, <laughs> Victoria is giving me the finger. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry that you were not born then. I'm sorry. Houses in cash, man. That's why there's no dulcimer players on the road now. Oh, yeah. That's my theory. But, yeah, that was uh, really something. So we went from double indemnity on to... Um, so then after double indemnity, I think five years and three albums, Frank uh, decided to quit and sue me. And so, so that <laughs> split up double indemnity. Mm -hmm. And then Linda Cavey and Gary Mazur and I and whatever fiddle player we work with at any given time, we are the revolving fiddle player band. Okay. So we became empty hats and we have been empty hats since 2000, 2000. So 22 years ago. Wow. Amazing how those numbers add up. Whoo. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and seven albums wow. ago and. Seven albums. I have four solo albums. It, it has been just a fabulous life. Pennsylvania has, has an incredible kids' day. They have an, a lot of kids' days. And they have the best kids' days of any festival ever. Really? Because they prepare their kids. Or at least they did. I don't know if they still do. But they go in with materials to all the schools that are coming. Mm. With, and there are competitions that the kids 
do on their kids' day. There's a Shakespeare competition. There's a madrigal competition. There's a poster art competition. There's a writing competition. There's like all of these competitions. And they're also given these materials to ask different... They have to ask a vendor. They have to ask a performer. They have to ask all of these people, what do you do? And one of the questions that they always ask is... What class are you? I'm, I've always been struck by that. And so my answer is, my stock response is, I'm of a class they're not telling you about. Oh. I'm of the artist's class. And that means I don't have a lot of money, but I get to travel all over the world. And sometimes I travel in carriages. And sometimes I travel in a hay wagon. And sometimes I sleep in castles. And sometimes I sleep in a barn. But I get to go all over the world. And I don't need to have a lot of money. And it doesn't happen often. <laughs> but every now and then, some kid will be like, I get that. <laughs> and then I realized I've ruined one more life. <laughs> it's like there, there's a meme somewhere. I don't know if I'll get this absolutely correct, but, you know, give a man a song, you know, he might spend money for a day. Teach a man to play a song, he'll be poor the rest of his life. <laughs> so. And that's how I've spent my life. I don't make a lot of money, and I don't need a lot of money. I point to my van and go, Caleb, one day all this will be yours. (laughs) But it's been a a hell of a life. It's been a phenomenal life. I feel very blessed. Yeah, there was a a, uh, year, it's been 90, 90, 91, something like that. Um, At Scarborough? At Scarborough. Doug Conjolka and Jose and Doug Muma and Dave Woolley they were. Uh, they both had a sword fighting act at the festival. Right. They were in different places, so right. they were kind of the rival sword fighters. But they, you know, by definition, never really encountered each other. Right. But they all were of the same, you know, sort of background of 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 sword fighters and and stage combat aficionados. Sure. So they, you know, they talked a lot in their off time about what they did, and they thought, you know, maybe we should try to do a real Renaissance era stage combat with like blood packs and and. <sighs> Animal guts, you know, right, which is right, what they right. did. I mean, Shakespearean um, uh-huh. combat. Sure, they, they sure. Would, they'd go right to the slaughterhouse for their, their, their special right. effects. And so the, the the idea evolved to become a competition between the performers who played at the crown stage and those who were in the holly field. Uh-huh. And with one of those teams at each of those places sort of being the core combatants and ultimately it being a evolving into a duel between Don Juan and Dirk Perfect, the two right, right, number sure. ones, with everybody else dying beforehand before I got yeah, to them yeah. in, in their uh-huh. own various gruesome ways. It became a thing over the course of the run of the fair as we practiced it, you know, uh-huh. and it got, you know, the vendors got word of it and fans got word of it. And when it finally occurred, it was the largest stage performance that I ever saw. Wow. Um, which at the time, I mean, I've seen bigger audiences since then. Right, but, of course. But there probably were about a thousand people there. And we realized that we were probably past the hat. This yeah, thing, yeah. And had to decide what to do with the money. And at that time, John O'Connor was living up in, in Minneapolis. And he um, had a friend who had a, a personal tragedy and a huge amount of expenses to cover. And we said, well, let's just donate the proceeds sure. to, to that person. Turns out the personal tragedy was that her 
boyfriend was actually knifed and died and she was trying to cover the funeral expenses. So there was this deep-baked irony. irony. <laughs> well, let's just help her out with a right. sword fight. Right, right. <laughs> with a lot of blood. And, so like there were no there was no overlap. She was not there, and we, right, right, we, right. We didn't like tell the audience what, what that was about. Oh, no. But but for everybody participating, there was this kind of really macabre uh, yeah. aspect to to That's how we were handling funny. everything, and it uh, it was the, the largest hat that I ever experienced at that time. Uh-huh. And did help her out quite a bit. And you but, know that thousand person, you were not amplified. No. So amplification and the allowing of amplification is probably one of the biggest changes. Absolutely. That Renaissance. Oh, we could go on about that. We could go on about that. And I don't, you know, I'm not a fan. Mm-hmm. I do it. I do it because you have to now. Yeah. But I'm I'm not a fan. I wish it didn't have you know, but now we're getting larger audiences, right. and so even Sterling allows that now, mm-hmm. which is only in the last five or six years, oh, maybe. Mm-hmm. And again, I, I, I don't. I don't. Even for the knife-throwing show here, we'll get it, you know, and I don't, I don't, I just don't like it. What changes for you? When I, when I use microphones? But, yeah. I don't feel like I'm connecting as much, and maybe it's because I've never done it enough, and I would be able to connect if I... Did it more if I if I felt that connection more? I don't like the way it sounds when I'm in the audience. I don't like it when I'm talking over here and they're hearing it over here and over here. Right. You know, it just feels weird to me. Yeah, I resisted it for a long time as well, and and for some of the same reasons. But it, especially that 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 sense, the the analog aspect of it is like you know of of being actually connecting physically. The vibrations that I am producing are actually connecting directly with the audience, right? And it's kind of esoteric and, and subtle, right? But but there is a sense that that is a an actual physical connection that you're making, right? And when it's processed through electronics and then comes out some from somewhere sure. else, there is this intermediary. That removes that sense of, of of really directly, and the illusion, of course, is somewhat lost. It's one more thing for the audience to have to sort of process away, right? To, to suspend their disbelief. Yeah, yeah, on. exactly. I always think that one of the things also that makes Renaissance festivals so popular and so so attractive. I remember the Saturday after nine eleven. Mm-hmm. Oh, so you know, well, I don't know what festival you I was were here in Ohio. You were here. Yeah. I was, it was packed. Yeah. And I don't know if you had it here, but that was the largest day Pennsylvania had ever had it was at giant. that point. Yeah. It was huge. And what it felt like, and there was this urgency about mm-hmm. it, and it felt like they didn't want to just be somewhere else. They wanted to be somewhen else. Yeah. They needed to be not in 2001. They just needed to be someone else. Yeah. And yeah. that's what we provide. And I remember having a huge argument with Chuck Romito, who was the owner at the time, mm-hmm. where at the end of that Saturday at the pub sing, he trotted out the American flag. Oh, and I was like, oh, dude. Yeah, you're going to get that response, you know, but why do you need to get, you don't, you don't need that. Mm. That was a 
powerful day. I remember some of the actors in the cast, they were like, oh, I'm, I'm just too distraught. I can't, I can't do it. I can't do it. And I said to them, I said, well, you need another job. Because this is in fact our sacred responsibility. Yeah. This is our job. We've been training for this day. This, <laughs> yeah. this we're going over the top, soldier. <laughs> That's right. That's, you know, we're, this is that. We're gonna bring merriment and laughter and peace to these Whether people who really like need it. it. <laughs> I know. I mean, and that's that is our sacred responsibility. Was Absolutely. That. I had, I don't think I'd ever felt more duty bound in my job than on that day. I agree. And so I told him, I said, if you can't do it today, you need another gig. Yeah. I remember walking on stage and having this sense of, it was like a balloon bursting. Like there was this, this sense of suspense. Like 9-11 was a Tuesday. Yes. And we went on Saturday. Uh-huh. And nobody had laughed in that. In period, five days. In five days. Right. And what we were going to do or what was going to happen. And we went on and did our show as exactly. usual. Exactly. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Almost as usual. You can't make reference yeah, to we were, it. We were know, missing you, somebody because he couldn't get out of Florida because he was home oh, visiting family. Oh, so we had to have right, a, of course, a, of course. a two-person version yeah, yeah, of the show. Yeah. But nonetheless, we did, we did we what do, we were there right. to do. Okay. And we produced the comedy that they were there for. And the laughter, the joy was just explosive in a way that I can't even describe. Um, it was it was, it was, there's almost desperate desperation. Yes, it. absolutely. But it was like whatever the, the, the other side of the coin of desperation is, they were exhaling. Just, yeah. Of, and just <sighs> releasing. Yeah. The sense yeah. of release. Yeah. Yeah. It was um, really, really powerful. Yeah. One of the most powerful weekends ever. Mm -hmm. May it never happen again. May it never happen again. <laughs> And the pandemic was too long of a drawn-out experience to have allowed for, well, like, and when we came back, there was, like, some... It was definitely it was, a like, close second, I would say. The job, yeah. but it was, like, there were parts of it that were still so painful in I the execution of it. I didn't... My, my first fair was, was here in Ohio in the fall mm -hmm. of 2021, last year. Last year. Mm -hmm. So there had already been a lot of opening up, people getting used to the idea of coming back out and among people. So when the fair opened, the overwhelming feeling that I felt was of this real urgency to get back to normal and normal being what they experienced at the fair. It wasn't the same sense of, of explosive energy that we felt it on that first Saturday after 9-11, but there was definitely that sense of expectation and excitement. It was it. a welcome home. It was, it was, a, it was, it was a welcome home. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And pent up expectation, you know, uh -huh. and, and need for that kind of, of release and entertainment. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Sure. So I certainly felt that throughout the season last yeah, year. Yeah, my first one back, and it was disjointed because my first one back was Sherwood, but they in were still Texas. very strict. Yeah, in Texas, outside in of spring, Austin. Yeah. And we still had to wear masks, though. That was spring of 2020. Yeah, yeah. no, uh, no, they no. were, well, they were open spring of 2020, but oh, then right, they, they closed, closed in the so middle. So this is spring 2021. So yeah. spring 2021, right, right, right. we still had Early. to wear masks. We couldn't bring people on stage. They were still social distancing people mm -hmm. in the audience. Right. It didn't feel like a welcome home. It wasn't until probably May exploded. It was huge. The crowd was huge. The sheer number of patrons, the increase in interest in going to Renaissance Fair, which is an outdoor event, yes. yeah. has definitely increased 
in, in your experiences here as well? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And again, that sense of let's let's get away from the divisiveness in the country. Let's get away from where we are now. Because, you know, there was no divisiveness in the Renaissance. <laughs> <laughs> I think there is something to that. There's something that I appreciate and, and feels is valuable. And part of our choices as comedians within this milieu is to not make contemporary references and not make those accessible jokes that one could in order to allow a space where people who are vastly different in their opinions can come together and laugh at the same thing. Right. And although it, it, it may be not be something that people are consciously thinking about when they're doing it, I, I do feel that there's, you know, if there's, if there's something important about what I do, that that is a component of bringing people together who can at least on some level perceive that like the person sitting over there has a, a, a Trump shirt or something that identifies right. them as liberal or whatever sure. it is and see that, oh, I'm with people who I would otherwise perhaps not think I have anything to share right. with. Sure. We're Absolutely. sharing this yeah. and experiencing that together. And I think yeah. that's, that's a, that's a healing yeah. space to yeah. create. Well, one of, one of the things that I always felt was magical about doing what I, what I do, if I'm successful at it anyway, is to take 200, 300, 400, 500 people mm -hmm. and make them one audience. Yes. And that's magical to me. Yes. When people will all erupt at the same time or all go, ah, ah, at the same time. When I was a kid, I used to go to movies and I would sit in the front row and watch the audience. I loved watching the audience. Mm. I got bored with the See, movie. See, that's why you have this job, because you that's get to right. watch audiences all that's the time. That's correct, <laughs> and that's what I figured, you know? Uh-huh. I love that I unification. Relate. yeah. Yeah. The other, the other thing that I realized a number of years ago, I, I saw an old black and white TV show, Wild Wild West. I don't know if you remember this. Oh, one. yeah. And it was Adam West in the Wild West, mm -hmm. and he was uh, like... FBI in the 1800s and he's he, secret service secret service yeah. and he lived on a train yes that went across so the country cool. and I went oh that's why I live in a bus because <laughs> of that because I was going that is the coolest thing ever that and a, and a book by Herman Hesse a book by Herman Hesse is really why I Which do book? what I do Narcissus and Goldman mm. um, Narcissus and Goldman is about a medieval traveler. And I read the book when I was 18 uh -huh. and left the next day. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That was quick. Yeah. I literally. <laughs> it was I like was, the elevator moment. That was it. Yeah. 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 I left. I just started hitchhiking. I grew up in a suburb of New York City mm -hmm. near Route 80. Okay. And because of that, Route 80, San Francisco was just <laughs> down the street. <laughs> it was one road, Route 80 went from uh, New York to San Francisco. I didn't need a map. I just got onto Route 80 and stuck my thumb man, out. You're not the only hitchhiked. one. No, of R course Renaga, not. you know, Renaga Fabiaris, he's a, he makes wind chimes and uh -huh. uh, sells beads. Uh -huh. That was, he did this, like, really? when, when like the summer of love happened, uh -huh. he was like, got a Route 80, just like stuck out his thumb. And That's it. Went, right. <laughs> that was all, that was it, you know? So I read Narcissus and Goldman and I went, all right, I'm a, I'm, I'm, I'm a traveler. And I realized I didn't, you know, about maybe 10, 15 years later, 
and I'd been now performing as a Renaissance traveler for quite some time. And I'm, you know, Barnes and Noble or something. And I see a new version of the book and I go, oh my God, I look like him. <laughs> I literally have created my life and my hair was like that. <laughs> I was like, all right. I mean, I, I invented this life from, you know, a Jewish kid in New Jersey to a medieval traveler. I mean, that's what I became. When I started doing my show in Central Park, that was where I debuted my Giacomo the Jester show in Central Park in New York City. And then I got this gig at the World's Fair. I got the gig at the World's Fair with probably the coolest promotional thing I've ever done in my life. Yeah. A World's Fair in Knoxville, Tennessee, yeah. 1982. And I wanted this job so bad. And they had wandering performers mm -hmm. around the festival that would do shows for the food lines, for the exhibit lines, and just to do street shows. and. I'm perfect for that job, you know? Right. I wanted it so bad and wanted to be an international traveler. So this was perfect for me. And I, so I call him up and this guy, Scott Tillery says, yeah, send us your video. We'll take a look at it. We'd love to. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. Uh, uh, I have to make a, a video. video? I don't have. I don't have the money to make a video. What yeah. is he kidding? I what, didn't what really did have a show. What did video cost in those days? If you were going to make, I don't. I, I have no idea. I mean, whatever it was, I yeah. couldn't afford it. Hundreds, you know, because yeah, yeah. again, like answering machine, video yeah. players were this big. The cameras were this big, were the, and yeah. it would cost a fortune to kind of produce and edit it. Yeah. Whatever you know, I mean, it was, and I didn't really. I didn't really have a show, you know, I mean, <laughs> that I could even videotape, you know, I just wanted the job. So I'm like bemoaning, I'm home bemoaning. Oh, I get blah, blah, blah. Now, a little backstory, two weeks earlier, a friend of mine was a second grade, third grade teacher mm -hmm. and had asked me to come to her class to perform for her kids. Mm -hmm. And I did. I was there for half an hour, 40 minutes, whatever, juggling, doing magic as Giacomo the Jester, and I did a show for her kids. Okay. So I'm sitting home bemoaning that I don't have a video, and all I see the mailman coming up the front steps, and I go out and get the mail, and there's a manila envelope there, and I open it up and take out all of these drawings by these eight-year-old kids of my show. Uh. And they were adorable. And these thank you notes of thank you. And all the letters are backwards and upside down <laughs> and the drawings in crayon. And they're freaking adorable. Yeah. So I like, I took them out and I'm reading them and I, I put them in another envelope and I send it to the world's fair. Uh. <laughs> and, and that got me the job because he, Scott Tillery, this guy, Scott Tillery, yeah. had a kid that age. And he opened up my envelope and he thought this was the coolest thing in the world. <laughs> and he handed them out to everybody in the office. And he goes to his boss and he says, listen, I know we don't have any idea what he does, but I want to hire him. So here's the deal. If he sucks, we'll fire him. <laughs> but this is so cute. I want to hire him. So I got the job. <laughs> And that was, that and, and I consider that my first professional job and I haven't had a straight job since. And what I did was 
because there were exhibits from all over the world, I went to all these different pavilions and convinced someone in the pavilion to translate my show into that language and put it on a tape. So I got to do it in Germany. A couple of years later, I got to do the World's Fair in Seville, Spain, oh, wow. in Spanish. I did my show in Spanish. Was there one that, like, you got the wrong dialect on the tape, or was that Paulo? Oh, no, no, that was me. I had had somebody translate my show into Spanish for the World's Fair. And I'm on the plane. The guy sitting next to me is from Spain. And I go, would you listen to my show? Just, you know, make a couple of little notes on pronunciation and corrections, you know, a couple of little things, you know. <laughs> and so I go through the whole thing and he's sitting there very patiently. <laughs> and he finally, I get done and he goes, that was great. It was really good. And if your audience is from Mexico, they're going to love it. <laughs> and I'm like... Excuse me? <laughs> this was Mexican Spanish. So he made a million corrections oh, wow. on this script. And then I was able to... Pull it off. Pull it off. So, Again, very lucky. <laughs> very lucky. And then I tried really hard to get 2015 a World's Fair in Milan. And I tried so hard to get a gig there. I couldn't do it. I approached it from literally four different angles. Mm. I so wanted to do my show in Italian at the World's Fair, you know, and I couldn't get it. World's Fairs by this point, the internet, they'd really yeah. lost their cachet. Yeah. The internet kind of killed the need for this kind of confluence, you right. know. Right. Um, People actually physically getting together. Right, <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Just not necessary. And then I tried doing it to be the entertainment director at the U.S. Pavilion. Mm. Couldn't get that to work. Tried. I mean, I did everything. I remember contacting the guy who was the head of the U.S. Pavilion on LinkedIn and try, you know, and then I tried. There was a, sh a town not far from there that was going to have their own thing. And I tried going. I just couldn't. I did go. And it was terrible. I mean, oh. it really was not a very good World's Fair. You could see that it was sort of the last vestige. There was not not the excitement because right. they right. weren't they they couldn't present things that were new, new and fresh. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, when I did the World's Fair in 1982, I remember there were three things that were brand new in the world at the World's Fair. One of them was the Rubik's Cube. Oh, really? <laughs> that had never been seen. And it was there. They had a giant Rubik's Cube there. And it was, it was enormous. I mean, and it was a big deal, the Rubik's Cube. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's often cliche now, but that was a big deal at the time. The other thing, it was the first time a computer that was, you know, probably the size of this trailer, uh, 1982, mm -hmm. that could convert, you know, and th thinking of it now, it's ridiculous. You could play notes on a piano and it would display the notation on a screen. Wow. That was miraculous at the time. 
It yep. was just, whoa, people whoa. would like go, oh my God. And you could play the piano, whether you played the piano or not. And it would just display. And then you could play it back, you know? Right. And it was like, whoa. I mean, it was, you know. And the other thing was the first time that this had left Philadelphia, which is the first place it was introduced in the U.S., but now it was introduced to the world, Haagen-Dazs ice cream. Hmm. And it was this funny name. I was created in New Jersey by a guy named Tim Malthus. It was the first boutique boutique ice, ice cream, cream and really yeah. boutique food. I mean, the whole boutique market really came out from Haagen-Dazs ice cream. These were big things, but now, you know, it's gonna be online in two seconds. It's gonna be on TikTok in a split second. So you know, yeah. just don't need a World's Fair anymore. This has been the Ren Fair History Podcast presented by Digital Ren Fair. I am Jonathan Crocker of The Wild Men and Theater in the Ground. And you can find me at uh, Facebook pages under both those names, as well as moremud.com and wildman.com. And you can find me, Giacomo the Jester or Carl Ash on Facebook. You can find me at renadventures.com. Uh, you can find me at emptyhats.com. Ciao, tutti!